This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we're going to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of a silent prayer so you can avail yourself of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then we will open in prayer and begin our final study in the Gospel of John this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together to study your word, that as we have learned in this study, it is by your word that we are sanctified. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And here we learn that uh, Jesus said that, that we should know the truth, and the truth would set us free. It is from this gospel that we have learned that the essence of our gospel, the good news is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we have eternal salvation. It is from this gospel that we have learned the mechanics of the spiritual life and the unique spiritual life of the church age. Now, Father, as we conclude this study, we pray that we would be mindful and that the Holy Spirit would recall to our thinking the things that we have learned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the last chapter of John, the 21st chapter, and I want to start where I was last Sunday in verses, verses 15 through 17, which is Jesus' last command to Peter, his last full command to Peter. Now here we see that... Um, very interesting, fascinating passage because of the way in which our Lord used these synonyms in order to bring out the emphasis of Peter's ministry and by application, what should be the emphasis of the pastoral ministry and the emphasis of each local church. One of the things that this passage, uh, the implications from this is that if the priority of the pastoral ministry is the teaching of the Word to feed, to nourish, to advance believers to maturity, then one of the things that we have to watch out for, which will become clear in the passage, is distractions. There are many things that churches do. People like to go to church for all kinds of reasons. They like to go for choirs. They like to go for youth groups. They like to go for, for fellowship. They like to go to eat cake and um, have coffee breaks. They like to go for all kinds of reasons. And... Um, but unfortunately, many of these good things can become distractions for people. Now, we're, we're a small church, and therefore there are many things that we can't do. And that's good. Uh, one of the things that every now and then I hear, a little grumbling or murmuring from somebody, why don't we do this or that or the other thing, and I don't hear that much. This is such a wonderful congregation. Everybody's so happy most of the time. But one of the things we always have to watch out for is that uh, people do want certain things in churches that, that perhaps larger churches can do. But as a small church, we don't do. And we can't do. We just don't have the personnel. I mean, the people who do things around here are, are so stretched. And um, I don't want to hear Jim Sexton saying amen. And we are indeed thankful that, that so many people, I mean, you, in most congregations, I think the rule of thumb is sort of the um, 80-20 rule or the 90-10 rule, which means 10% of the people do 90% of the work. 
or 20% of the people do about 90% of the work. But around here, just looking around the congregation, I think it's, it's much better than that. We have a high degree of participation. And I, for one, am, am grateful for that. Uh, this is the third church I've pastored, and by far and above, the best congregation I've ever had. And um, I don't want to trade that for anything, that's for sure. Uh, but I really enjoy that. And we have a focus here, and that focus is on the teaching of the Word. And I want that to be our hallmark. I mean, when people think of Preston City Bible Church, I want them to think of the fact that people who go there learn the Bible and apply the Bible. It's not just the fact that, well, they know the Bible. You know, there's a lot of places you can go and learn a lot about the Bible, maybe, but not apply it. But learning and applying the Bible is our forte. That's our strength. That's what we should be known for. As the Lord gives us the opportunity, perhaps, over the years, as we grow a little bit and perhaps have people with other uh, spiritual gifts and talents come in, we may do some other things. But for now, my personal belief is don't expect people to do what they don't really have the talent to do. And don't try to impose things on people that, that they don't have the spiritual gifts or that God hasn't provided for. Just do whatever it is you can do and uh, do it to the best of your ability. That's how we glorify God. And what we do here is, uh, is teach the Word and make sure that, that from uh, preschool all the way up, people are going to be well grounded in the Word and they're going to be taught to think Biblically, Now, that right there is going to set us apart from 99.9% of the congregations in this country. And I think even in that, I'm optimistic. Because, unfortunately, we live in an era when people do not want to think. People want to emote. They want to feel. They want to have some sort of experience with God. They want to have some sort of spiritual encounter. But they don't necessarily want to learn to think biblically and to develop critical thinking skills on the, frame, on the basis and from a framework of Bible doctrine. But that's why we're here. I believe firmly that that is the key to spiritual growth, that we are continuously under pressure. I mean, if we could, could sort of roll back the blinders from our eyes and see all of the human viewpoint that pervades our thinking, I think we would all be in a state of shock because we are so used to it. It's so comfortable for us. And the only way to attack that and that human viewpoint thinking in our soul is to be immersed in doctrine. It has to be the highest priority of our lives and for our children. And you parents need to be backing this up at home, constantly coming to class so that you can learn doctrine. Find out what your kids are learning in their Sunday school classes and reinforcing that, teaching them how to apply the things that, that we are learning in terms of their immersion in the culture as a whole. For example, in first hour, when we're studying Judges, we are studying how a nation succumbs to paganism. We're learning various symptoms of paganism and pagan thought and human viewpoint thinking. Now, that's something you need to be communicating to your kids in light of the various opinions and pressures and ideas and fads that they're, they're exposed to in school. Uh, with the election that's going on right now and the things that are going on, um, in relation to that and, and during any kind of a political encounter, parents should be teaching their children, and there's no age, I think, that's too early. You should be starting to teach your kids how to think and analyze issues from a biblical framework. You should be uh, helping them to understand, and we, will be te- we teach them at certain, I don't know the age level where they learn divine institutions, But as they grow up, they learn divine institutions. Sunday school teachers, teachers in the home should be teaching your children how to use those divine institutions as an evaluative grid for critical thinking about uh, political platforms and political parties and and what politicians promise. You're never going to find anybody in our culture today who's 100%. 
But you find people who line up the most with a biblical framework and orientation, and that's what you support. But you have to teach them. If they don't learn it from you, they will learn it wrongly from somebody else. And so you, as a parent, have that responsibility. It is a teaching uh, aspect, and that's why we emphasize the things we do from the pulpit here is in fulfillment of the mandates given in verses 15 through 17. Now, last week, as I was going through this, and this is, a, in some sense, a little bit of a complex passage to work our way through because of the various synonyms that are used, I did have a couple of questions about some things at the end, and I was losing it. Fortunately, we have a comfortable temperature in here, but when the temperature starts bumping up over about 72, and I start feeling those little rivulets of uh, perspiration roll down my back, to the degree that uh, for each degree it gets over about 71 or 72, I lose a couple of degrees of concentration. (laughs) So that's why I like it relatively cool, and I think I said thing I wasn't real clear about the last five minutes last time, so we're going to back up and do a little review to make sure we all get this. Unfortunately, one of the major, one of the main people who had some questions is not here because Uh, he's on his way out of state, so he'll have to get the tape. John 21.15. What I want to do, basically, in terms of summary here, is just go through the literal translation from the New American Standard, and then I'm going to just summarize an expanded translation for you, a paraphrase, so that you can get the gist of what the, the nuance of what Jesus and Peter are talking about. The context is after Jesus had fed them. So he has used this um, object lesson of the fishing in the first 14 verses to teach the principle that he provides the food. The food comes from God. It doesn't come out of the pastor. I don't generate this. I'm not up here to teach my opinion. It's amazing how many times uh, I uh, would like to teach X, Y, or Z, but I get up here and... uh, Uh, You always teach what the Scripture says. That's the job. You start teaching something that you want to teach or your opinion, and you're in trouble. And the problem that we have is too many pastors are teaching their opinion and not what the Word of God says. So we see that Jesus is the one who provides the food. Now, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these, and I made the point that that earlier Peter had said, "I, I won't betray, betray you more. I'll be more faithful than anybody else." And so the idea of the comparison here, more than these, is recalling to Peter's mind his arrogance prior to the crucifixion, when he had told the Lord that he would not uh, betray the Lord at all. He loved him more than anyone else. Uh, he was more faithful than anyone else. So now Jesus is coming back. And the subtext here is, Peter, have you learned your lesson? Have you learned the lesson of humility? And um, are you ready to go forward now? So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Now, as we look at this passage, there are um, various... Words that are important. For example, right here, Jesus says, do you love me? We have this word love. And then we have Peter responding, Lord, you know that I love you. And these two words are different. They're the same in English, but they're different words in the Greek. The first is agape, or agapao, the verb. And the second is the verb phileo. Now, when Peter responds, he says, Lord, you know that I love you, and he uses the Greek word oida. He's going to change to gnosko at the end, in the last interchange. And then Jesus says, uses the word, says, says to him in the end, tend my lambs. He uses one word for tend here, and one word for lambs, and he will change those words using synonyms in this interchange. So it's important for us to understand why there is this shift in synonyms. Now, what happens today is you will go listen to your typical pusillanimous pastor, 
And he will say that, well, this really is just stylistic. He just doesn't want to say the same word over and over again, so he just changes it for stylistic reasons. Well, to me, that is a denial of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy teaches the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That means the word verbal there means that every word is inspired. Inspired means God breathed. They have neustos in the Greek. And that God the Holy Spirit so breathed out the truth through the writers of Scripture that without violating their individual personality, style, their, uh, that he communicated without error divine truth. So this tells us that if each word is is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is emphasizing something by these distinct words. Now, to understand the difference in synonyms, we have to realize that a word has a field of meaning. I'll use this chart to illustrate it. The yellow circle indicates um, uh, one field of meaning for the word. It may have various shades of meaning or nuances. And then you have a synonym which is similar, and the overlap indicates that there, there are certain similarities where the words are almost interchangeable. And then there are other aspects where they're not quite interchangeable, but they over, they, they are, they're very similar. And in that distinction, perhaps, is, is what the writer is emphasizing. Other ways in which this is expressed, you have one word has one field of meaning, and then another word is, is a subset. It is... It is not as broad. For example, agape is a very broad word for love, a noun for love. And uh, philos is a more restricted word for love. Agape sometimes can be used as a synonym for philos, uh, but sometimes philos cannot be used as a synonym for agape because agape has a broader sense. And phileo, the verb, and philos, the noun, tend to emphasize a more intense intimate love. Now, there's a lot of things you read about these words, and so you have to dig a lot and, um, in order to come up with these distinctions. And when you do your word study and you look at how these words are used in John, Jesus' love for his disciples is phileo. Jesus' love for Lazarus is phileo. All the examples in John of phileo love indicate an intense and intimate relationship. It's not just friendship. It's, it's more than just just friendship, but it indicates an intensity and an intimacy that, that is not necessarily present in agapao. And then sometimes the words are more disparate. For example, there, there's very little commonality and there's much more differences between words. So that's understanding that how synonyms relate to one another. So we have four sets of synonyms here, agapao and phileo. Oida and Gnosko. Oida emphasizes God's intuitive knowledge, omniscience, what we would call omniscience, that God knows all the noble. Whereas Gnosko usually emphasizes learned knowledge or observed knowledge, knowledge from observation. Uh, then you have two different words related to feeding or shepherding. Bosco indicates the feeding aspect, providing the teaching of the word, whereas poimano is a broad word for shepherding. Now, there's a lot of things a shepherd can do for a sheep, but here in poimano, the emphasis is more on the leadership role of the shepherd. And then you have two different words for sheep, arnia meaning small lambs, uh, uh, the infant, spiritual infant, and probata indicating more the adult sheep. So these are the four synonyms that we talked about. So let's expand the translation, see the emphasis. Peter, I mean, Jesus is saying to Peter in the first interchange, Simon, do you love, that is agape, do you, are you willing to obey me? Remember, we saw the principle that love is related to obedience. If you love me, you keep my words. Do you love me? In other words, are you willing to be obedient now, which you weren't before? Have you learned, in other words, have you learned the lesson of humility yet, willing to submit to my authority? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience, it's oida, you know from your omniscience that I now have an intimate, intense love for you. He's going a step further. He's saying, Lord, I've been forgiven for, my, for, 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 um, um, for denying that I knew you. And, and now that I have been forgiven for denying that I knew you, I, I understand what grace is all about. Because there, there I just acted as if I had never known you and I just uh, I turned my back on you and you forgave me anyway. And so now, having been forgiven of so much, I really understand what grace 
is all about, and because of that, my love for you has intensified. I have an intimate, intense love for you now that I've been forgiven and understand what grace is all about. So Jesus said to him, this is the priority, feed through, the, through Bible doctrine my little lambs. Spiritual infants need truth. John 21.16, we read in the translation, New American Standard, Jesus, he, Jesus, said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. What's the point here? Jesus is saying to him, Simon, do you love me? He's repetition, once the emphasis, are you sure you, you love me? You're going to be obedient. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience, it's Oida again, that I have an intense, intimate love for you. Peter is not backing off. He said, not only do I love you, I'm going to be obedient, but I've learned my lesson of grace. You know it. Um, I have this intense love for you. And so Jesus now shifts the term. Don't just feed them, lead them. Lead them through the teaching of doctrine. All the sheep, not just the infants, but all the sheep. That's how a pastor leads the congregation. Primarily, it is through the teaching of the Word of God. That is the absolute it is the Word of God, and that sanctifies, and so that is how the, the pastor uh, leads the sheep. Third interchange. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time Jesus shifts the term. Instead of using agape, he goes to Peter's term. Phileo. Do you have this intense, intimate love for me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. Peter's not catching, not even picking up on the synonym shift. Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? In other words, Lord, don't you really believe me? And he said to them, Lord, you know all things, oida, you are omniscient, you know everything, and as a subset of your omniscience, you know from experience, you know, you have seen how I responded to your forgiveness. You know from watching me the last few days that I understand grace now. I am humble. I am not arrogant. You know this from experience. Not only do you know it, omniscient, you have witnessed this change in my own life, and you know that I phileo you, that I have this intense, intimate love for you. And then Jesus comes back and he says, Tend, Bosco again, which is the word he used in the first interchange, my sheep, probata, all my sheep. So in this last emphasis, he comes back, and first it was feed the little lambs, then it is a more general lead all the sheep, and now it is the more uh, precise feed through the teaching of doctrine, all my sheep. Adults need it. They need to be led. They need the teaching of the Word, just as do the, the spiritual infants. This is the point. Paraphrase Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you really have this intimate, intense love for me? Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you have this intimate love for me? And Peter replied, Lord, you know all things. You know from experience. You've seen it with your own eyes. My response to your forgiveness and the change in me because of the resurrection. You have this experiential knowledge of my intense love for you. So Jesus now concludes, Peter, feed all my sheep. One application of this is that prior to feeding the sheep, one has to have grace orientation and true humility before one can function in the realm of leadership and the teaching of doctrine. That is why immature believers should not be elevated to a point of teaching the word until they have passed a certain level of spiritual maturity. Now, Jesus goes on in talking to Peter in verse 18. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself. Gird yourself means to dress yourself, to put on your clothes. You'd get up in the morning, and you would look in the wardrobe, and you would decide whether you would put on the white robe or the beige robe or the black robe. That was it. They didn't have as many options back then as we do today. It wasn't a choice between uh, putting on the Armani suit or uh, just wearing uh, blue jeans or putting on uh, uh, something else, putting on... uh, uh, Whatever he wanted, he had, uh, but it was up to him. He could dress himself. He was not under any outside pressure as to what to wear. So Jesus says, when you were younger, you'd put on whatever you wanted to wear, and you would go wherever you wanted to go. You walked where you wished. But when you grow old, now Jesus is going to prophesy concerning Peter's uh, future life. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. This is a 
uh, an idiom that was used to describe someone who was crucified because their hands were stretched out on the cross. He says, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. So there's a double entendre there. We've certainly seen that in John's writing, not only implying the fact that he would be crucified, but, but that he would have his hands bound and he would be taken where somebody else wanted him to go. So Jesus said, you'll stretch out your hands, someone else will gird you, someone else will clothe you, and take you where you do not wish to go. You will be a captive, you will be bound, and your volition will no longer matter. Someone will, you will be imprisoned and eventually crucified. Now this is verse 18. Verse 19, John gives us his uh, divinely inspired interpretation of Jesus' statement. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he, that is Peter, would glorify God. John is writing some 25 years after Peter's martyrdom in Rome. So he is looking back on that. Now let's look at the life of Peter for a few moments. After these events, we see that Peter becomes a major leader of the disciples in Acts chapter 1, where he gets them involved in the... uh, a fallacious choice of Matthias as an apostle. Now, the reason I say that, and there's a lot of debate as to whether this was a valid or an invalid selection method, the reason I say it's invalid is because you, the gift of apostle is a spiritual gift bestowed by God the Holy Spirit. A spiritual gift is not chosen by the casting of lots. It is determined sovereignly by God the Holy Spirit and bestowed its salvation. And so you don't select an apostle simply by choosing lots on the basis of the fact that they were, were around and were witnesses of the uh, resurrection of Christ. Although that was part of the requirement, uh, there is something more than that. It is the possession of a spiritual gift. So Peter uh, blows it there and then he has his uh, tremendous uh, preaching leading 5,000 to Christ in Acts 2, 4,000 later on in Acts 3. And um, Peter is a major player in Acts up through about Acts 9. And then with the conversion of Paul in Acts 9, you see that Peter begins to take more of a back seat in the narrative of Acts until by Acts 12, Peter drops out. And the focus from that point on is on the Apostle Paul and the... um, Uh, his ministry to the Gentiles. From 33 A.D., when Christ was crucified, until 40 A.D., Peter is associated with the apostles in Jerusalem. He is involved in the leadership of the church in Jerusalem and Judea and in that area, and is involved in missionary activity in and around Judea. He is the one who who God uses to break down the barrier to the Gentiles when he takes the gospel to the household of Cornelius. But we also learned from our study in Galatians chapter 2 that he was involved with the church in Antioch and succumbed to the pressure of the legalists in Galatia, and he had to be corrected face to face by the Apostle Paul so that he would not lead the church into legalism. He remains a pillar of the Jerusalem church for 14 years, we know from Galatians 2, for 14 years after Paul's conversion. So Paul is converted sometime around 35 A.D. And so add 14 to that, you come up to 49 A.D. So from approximately 33 to 49, we know of where Peter was. And from 40 to 49, there's sort of a hole. And there we know that that must be the time when he took the gospel to the Jewish community in Babylon. There was a large Jewish community that stayed in Babylon, did not return to the land after the Babylonian captivity. Remember, God took Israel out of the land, disciplined them with the Babylonians under the army of Nebuchadnezzar at the time of Daniel. And uh, we're going to come back and study Daniel. As I said in the introduction, it's interesting to see how things come together. In Judges, we're learning the characteristics of a pagan culture. In Daniel, we are going to learn how a believer lives and is successful when surrounded by a pagan culture. Because Daniel lives and operates in one of the most pagan environments of all of human history under both the Babylonian and Persian empires. And at that time, in both empires, he is elevated to the number two position of power in that pagan environment. 
So today, when we look around us and we see everything in our society falling apart, it's real easy sometimes to become very negative and to wonder just how we're going to survive and if certain administrations continue their uh, policies and if our culture continues to deteriorate morally and spiritually. But what we see from what we will learn from Daniel is even as in that kind of environment, believers can be extremely successful and have a tremendous witness. So uh, between uh, judges on Sunday morning and Daniel on Wednesday night, which will probably start around the turn of the year, uh, we're going to learn a lot about living in the context of paganism. And then, uh, then we're going to start next week, First John, we're going to learn what it, how to stay in fellowship. And when you're living in the context of paganism, you have to know how to stay in fellowship. So it's interesting to see how the Lord sort of worked in my thinking to bring all of this together. Well, after the Babylonian captivity, a large number of Jews returned back to Jerusalem, but a huge number stayed in Persia, in the Persian Empire. And there was a tremendous community of Jews there. So Peter went there between 44 and 49 A.D. with the gospel. Then he returns back to Jerusalem where he has his confrontation with uh, Peter and the problems in Antioch. Now, after that, things get a little fuzzy, and we have to rely more on tradition than on any hard biblical evidence. We know from Second uh, Peter that Paul is involved in the Jewish churches in Asia Minor, in what's, what was known then as Pontus, the, the regions of Pontus, Bithynia, and Cappadocia, in the area we now know as Turkey. But what happened there? We know that he was there till about 56 to 58 A.D. We're not sure when he left. But then there is also a very strong tradition in Gaul and in Britain that Peter took the gospel there. Somewhere during that time, uh, there is the tradition that Peter became the patron saint of Chartres. Today, there is a, uh, one of the greatest uh, remaining medieval cathedrals is at Chartres, and apparently the original church, and when we were there this last summer, we went down into the crypt. The crypt is the, uh, that's not a burial place. A crypt is from the same word, we get the word cryptic, it means a secret or hidden place, and that in Roman Catholicism was where they put the relics. But it was built, there are, they have uncovered ancient Roman ruins, and even before that, it was the location of a Druidic temple. And apparently it was there that, that Peter went and had some converts, and they transformed that uh, Druidic temple into a church. There was also a monument discovered in Whithorn, England, dating from this same period that has an inscription in Latin that said, this is the place of Peter the Apostle. Further tradition in, in England suggests that Peter preached at an ancient church site where currently stands the Abbey of St. Peter at Westminster. So there's a strong tradition that between about 58 to 65 A.D., Peter was involved in taking the gospel into what is modern France and modern England. And then and only then did he go to Rome. We don't know if he went to Rome under his own volition or if he went to Rome under arrest because it was only a couple of years before he was martyred. But this is the earliest time that Peter could have been in Rome from what we know. Uh, Eusebius says that Peter went to Rome in 44, but 44 doesn't fit with everything else we know about Peter. If he was in Rome in 44, then he couldn't have been in Babylon, and there's no other time frame in Peter's life when he could have been at the churches in Babylon, according to uh, uh, First Peter. So the only time Peter could have gone to Rome was in 63 to 65, or probably about 65 A.D., and that means that the church in Rome was not founded by the Apostle Peter. It was already there. And it was uh, established by the time Paul wrote his uh, epistle to the Romans. And it was after that that Peter finally came to Rome. So there's no evidence that Peter founded the church at Rome. When he, sometime after he came, he either came under arrest or shortly thereafter, 
uh, Nero had him arrested, and he was placed in one of the most horrible environments of the ancient world. It was called the Mamertine Dungeon. In classic Latin literature, it was also known as Gemonium or the Tullian Keep. And it was the, the name of the Tullian Keep had more horror to a Roman citizen than Auschwitz or Dachau would have to a Jew in the 20th century. It was the most horrific site. It was the scene of the uh, worst torture chamber in the ancient world. And um, in 50 B.C., this was 100 years before Peter, the historian, the Latin historian Sallust describes it in this, this way. He says, in the prison called the Tullian, there is a place about 10 feet deep. This was the Tullian Keep. It is surrounded on, si- on the sides by walls and is closed above by a vaulted roof of stone. That meant that it was absolutely dark in there. There was no light in the Tullian Keep. The appearance of it from the filth and the darkness and the smell is terrible. There were no latrines. They would take the prisoners down there and they would uh, put manacles on their wrists and they would chain them to a wall where they would virtually hang there by their wrists until they either went insane or died or both. The uh, stench there was uh, unbearable. According to tradition, Peter was chained to a stone column in the keep and he, where he was unable to sit or to lie down, and he survived for nine months before he was finally removed and taken out and crucified by Nero upside down. When they began to crucify him, he said he did not want to be crucified in the normal way because that he did, was not worthy to die in a manner like the Lord. So he had them crucify him upside down in 67 A.D. So this is what Jesus is referring to in John 21:18. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you, will chain you and someone else and they will bring you where you do not wish to go. Well, after he had said this, John interprets it for us that that's a prophecy of Peter's death and at the last part of verse 19 we read, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, Jesus sends to, turns to Peter and says, follow me. This is the standard challenge to the student, disciple. That's the term. Today there's a big, the, the, the big catch word. It's amazing how Christians always seem to get all caught up with certain buzzwords. And I, I, I really, if you've noticed, I really try to stay away from all the um, Christian verbiage that is so... Uh, so standard, and everybody today, the, the big trend for the last 30, 40 years has been discipleship. Now, the word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, which means a student, a learner. There's nothing, there's no super spiritual meaning to disciple. Uh, Plato had disciples, Aristotle had disciples, any teacher had disciples. They were just students. That's all it means is students. Now, Matthew 28 uh, 19 and 20, Jesus uh, says with that imperatival participle, while you are going, where you are going, make disciples. Make students. Now, what's hap- what has happened, and the reason I- I'm saying this is every now and then we get some, uh, one of the poor young men, and I always hate it when they go through this, that they have to learn. They go to seminary, and, they ha- and seminaries make the big deal about discipleship. Back in the 40s or 30s, there was a guy who started a, a, a Christian organization, campus organization, had a lot of impact on the military. And uh, their emphasis, he decided that discipleship had to be done like Jesus did it. You know, Jesus went out and he got a small group. So that's the way discipleship is done. That's how you make disciples is you do it with a small group, one-on-one or one-on-two. And that methodology became adopted by a couple of other campus organizations. So that today it has become virtually accepted by every non-thinking, and I'm even talking about PhDs, by every non-thinking Christian leader that there's only one way to do to make Christians students of the Word, and that's in some kind of a small group with one or two people. But what Jesus did with the 12 disciples was unique. 
It was related to their function as the, found, as the pillars and the, the foundation of the church in the church age. It was related to the fact that he had a unique ministry and he was training them to be the leaders of the new church. He was not establishing a methodological example because you never see that later with Peter Paul. Oh, yeah, you can come along and say, well, Paul had Timothy and Silas. These were his assistants, much like a pastor of a large church or perhaps a missionary out on the field might have two or three men who are assisting him. But never once do you have the term mathetes applied to Silas or Timothy. In fact, you don't find a repetition of the term mathetes or mathetuo for make disciples, the verb, anywhere after the Gospels. That's not there. It's almost as if the Lord said, oh, I'm going to make sure we don't use that word again because some idiots are going to come along and glorify this word and make it a, make it a standard term for, for the Christian life. And that's really what's happened. But you don't find that in the Scriptures. What you find is an emphasis on the pastor-teacher, and the pastor makes students of the Word in large groups. From, from, that's what the model you see from Acts on is one man with a communication gift communicating to, to uh, anywhere from 10, 20, 30, 100, 500, 1,000. You certainly don't see that in the early stages of Acts. On the first three days of the church, after the day of Pentecost, you had 4,000 saved, 5,000 saved men. It doesn't mention all the women and children that were also saved at that time. And I think that within about three weeks, you had a church in Jerusalem of 50,000, 60,000 people, minimum. Now, a couple of observations. They're not breaking them down into small groups. How do you know that? You still only have 11 disciples, and they're, beginning, they're going to be going out before long, but you only have 11 disciples Eleven disciples into, let's just take a round figure, 66,000. That's one disciple per 6,000. That's not exactly the kind of uh, small group orientation you see promoted by all your little campus organizations today. One to 6,000. Not only that, but they only had one church. They weren't breaking them up, and they would all meet down at the temple, and they would have huge assemblies of 25,000, 30,000 people. And so when it came time that they, they realized that they had some uh, administrative problems and just uh, making sure that the widows were taken care of in terms of the administration of, 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 um, uh, of food and making sure their physical needs were taken care of, they decided they needed some deacons. Now let me see. My first church had an average attendance of about 120 adults. We had 25 deacons. I've seen some church, in fact, I was talking to a guy about this last week, and he said in his first church he had 50 people and had 18 deacons. You know what? They had 66,000 people and they chose seven deacons. See, we get top-heavy in many of our organizations. It doesn't need a lot of people to run the church because Jesus said, I will build my church. And our job, pastor's job is to teach the Word, not to do all these other things that the culture says that a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to study and teach. And the deacons are to take care of the physical needs. And that doesn't mean that they have to be the ones who are doing all the nail hammering and money collecting and everything else. They just can oversee it so that you, you just need a few people to, to take care of the needs and the situation of, of thousands of people. But you don't have this kind of uh, silly little one-on-one um, -on -one so-called discipleship that you have today anywhere in the New Testament. So, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. That means follow my example, follow the teaching of the Word. Are you willing to submit to my authority and make doctrine the number one priority in your life? Well, Peter shows right away that he still has a problem with distraction in verse 20, which is a problem we all have at times in the Christian life. We wonder, well, what about somebody else? So Peter turns around while he and the Lord are walking there, and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the way John referred to himself. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, 
who is, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So all of that is just to identify John. And then verse 21, Peter, therefore, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, Peter, you follow me. And Peter says, well, wait a minute, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? See, Peter's already distracted by prophecy. He's already distracted by his future. He finds out that he's probably going to die a martyr's death, and he doesn't want to be there all by himself. So what about my buddy John? Because remember, Peter and John are very close later on in, even in Acts. They're, they're ministering together. They were the first two who went to the, uh, the disciples who went to the tomb. So he's immediately distracted. See, this is the biggest problem that we have in the Christian life, is how easily we are distracted from making doctrine a priority. We live in an age today when we have so many entertainment options, so many job options, so many things that we can do that are good and valid. But, what ha- but the test for us is a test of priority. Are we willing to make doctrine the number one priority in our life? And it doesn't happen by just showing up once on Sunday. That's not going to do it. We are not never going to be able, we are never going to be able to completely renovate our thinking and to do away with all the human viewpoint garbage that's gotten into our soul if we just show up once a week for Bible class. Thing. That means that, that you ought to get tapes. I have a friend of mine in Houston who, who says, Robbie, I don't want you to be teaching four or five Bible classes a week. Number one, you won't have enough time for your family life. But number two, I'll go nuts. I have to listen to every tape three or four times just to really get everything out of it that's there. Just keep teaching two or three times a week, and uh, we'll just listen seven or eight times a week. So that's the... Uh, that's the way we renovate our thinking, constantly, consistently hearing the word over and over again to knock all those human viewpoint opinions out of our soul. So Peter has to learn the priority lesson here and the distraction lesson. And Jesus answers him in verse 22, If I want him to remain until I come, what business is that of yours? In other words, Peter, you worry about God, my plan for your life and don't worry about my plan for anybody else's life. You worry about your own spiritual growth and your obedience to me, and don't worry about anybody else. You follow me. Present active imperative of akalutheo, which means you make your relationship to me your highest priority. Verse 23, this saying, therefore, went out among the brethren. This is John writing, a little, little aside here. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. In other words, he's telling us that the rumor got started from this that uh, John wasn't going to die, but Peter would die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, so he's going to correct the rumor. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? And then he identifies himself again as the author of the gospel in verse 24. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. I want you to notice two words in the English there. They translate the Greek uh, martyreo, which means to bear witness or to testify in a legal sense. This is the disciple who bears witness. John is bearing witness in a legal sense of what is going on. I'm going to come back and make a point about that in a minute. And he wrote these things, and we know that his legal testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. We, we can well imagine. We could read through the gospel if we wanted to in just a matter of a few short hours. And yet Jesus ministered publicly for over three years. There must have been hundreds, thousands of incidents. And that's what John is saying here. If everything were written in detail, this is not exaggeration. If everything were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. So he's saying there are many other things happened, but I wrote of these things. I picked these incidents for, for a purpose. And what was that? We saw that back in John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, that is, He is the Messiah, fully God, and that by believing, 
you might have life through his name. Now, what are the eight signs? We have studied these just by way of wrapping up our study of John. The eight signs were that that Jesus turned the water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Secondly, he healed the nobleman's son back in chapter 4. After the uh, episode with the woman at the well, the nobleman sent to him, telling him his son was, was ill and about to die. And so he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. He uh, healed the cripple at uh, Bethsaida in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. In uh, chapter 6, he fed the 5,000, showing that he is the source of our nourishment. He walked on the water, showing his power over the creation, the forces of nature, in chapter 6, verses 15 to 21. He healed a man born blind, showing that he is the one who opens the eyes to spiritual truth, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. He raised Lazarus from the dead, showing that he is able to to raise us to, to new spiritual life and to conquer death, in chapter 11 verses 1 through 44, and the final and greatest sign was the sign of the resurrection in chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and its prophecy in chapter 2, 18 to 19, when Jesus said, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Now, as we've gone through our study of John, we have seen that John has been making a case. His case is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. His case is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And in accomplishing this, not only does he bring these signs together, because these signs show that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah will heal. The Messiah will be greater than than nature. This Messiah, in fact, according to Isaiah 9, 6, he will be God. Unto us a Savior is born, Isaiah says, and he will be called Father of Eternity. So he's born indicates humanity, that he's called Father of Eternity indicates his deity. John is demonstrating that. Furthermore, John is going to arrange all of this like a court case. He is going to say, I'm going to prove a point. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, let's look at the evidence. First, there are the signs. And then throughout this gospel, he brings out his witnesses. He brings numerous witnesses to demonstrate this. The first is John, John the Baptist. John 1, 7, he came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. And then in John 1, 15, John bore witness of him, that is John the Baptist, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This was his testimony. And then in verse 34 of chapter 1, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the first witness was John the Baptist. And then Jesus had a witness before Nicodemus, his testimony. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you that we speak that which we know, and we bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And we saw there that Jesus is demonstrating that ultimately... It is not empirical data that is going to convince the unbeliever of the truth of the gospel. He is not saying it is in spite of empirical data because you have the evidence of of the signs. You have the evidence of the resurrection. All of that is empirical data. But he is saying that, that empirical data alone is not going to do it. We have witnessed and I, I have come from outside. I've come from heaven. I drew the box on the overhead showing that, that our knowledge is limited. Our knowledge is limited by our experience. Our knowledge is limited by our, our rational capabilities. And God sent his son from outside of our experience to teach us um, about the truth of heaven and how to have a relationship with God. This is his witness. The woman at the well is the third witness, John 4.39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. She gives a witness to him as Messiah. The Father, God the Father and the Holy Spirit bear witness in John 5.31 and 32. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Furthermore, he said, his works bear witness in John 5.36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, 
The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And then in John 5:37, And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. John 8:18, he says, I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And Jesus answered in John 10:25, Jesus answered and said to them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. So his works testified to who he was as the eternal God-man. And the Messiah, uh, promised by the Old Testament, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, also bear witness of Him. John 5.39, the Scriptures bear witness of Him. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of Me. And as a result of that witness, we are called as believers to be future witnesses for Jesus Christ under the power of God the Holy Spirit. John 15.26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And we bear witness of the apostolic witness, because we have it recorded in the canon of Scripture, and so when we communicate the truth to people, we are making a case that Christ is Messiah. That is what witnessing is all about. It is legal testimony that Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. And we also learn that our ability to witness is not based on our ability to persuade. It's not based on our rational capacity. It's not based on our ability to convince or to develop convincing empirical truths, proofs, but it is ultimately based on God, the Holy Spirit, who is working in and through our witness. We saw that in John 16:7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict. And that word is elenko in the Greek, meaning to convince to build an unshakable case. So every unbeliever hears this. They may reject it, but they know it is an unshakable case that the Holy Spirit builds. He convicts the world, not believers, but the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what does that mean? It's concerning sin because they do not believe in me. He, con- he convicts them of their unbelief. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. This is imputed righteousness. This is not practical righteousness. And then verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's not future judgment. That's the judgment on the cross. So there we saw that that's the thrust of the gospel, to explain that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that we receive salvation because our righteousness is not good enough. We need his righteousness. And that is imputed to us when we have faith alone in Christ alone. And then we were given a new commandment related to the church age. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So one of the greatest testimonies that we can have is our advance to spiritual maturity and the character of Christ that is built in our lives because it is by that exemplified by this kind of love that Jesus had, that all men will know that we are his disciples, his learners, his students, that we have learned from him. And so Jesus, so we conclude with what Jesus said in John 14:15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you, and He will be in you. And that is the function of the spiritual life of the church age. It's based on the not just the indwelling, but the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And we have the filling of the Holy Spirit when we walk in fellowship with God, which is called abiding in Christ. And that is a major theme of 1 John. And so with this, we're going to transition from our study of John into 1 John, which is a commentary on the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John and is a further development of the uh, dynamics for the spiritual life in the church age. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the tremendous doctrines that we have learned in our study of the Gospel of John, the picture of our Lord and Savior who was 
undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person for all eternity. And that because of who he was, because of his impeccability, he was qualified to go to the cross. And there he died as our spiritual substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins that by faith alone, In Him alone, we might receive the free gift of eternal life. Not on the basis of who we are, but based on His perfect righteousness, which has been imputed to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. It is simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you can do that right now, right where you sit. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise your hand, or do any other thing other than simply believe Christ died for you. God the Father knows what you trust for salvation. And at the moment of faith alone, you are instantly regenerated, become a child of God, enter into the royal family of God, and become a royal priest with eternal life that can never be taken away. Father, we pray for the rest of us. You will challenge us that we need to be like Peter and to continue to follow the example of our Lord in his walk by means of God the Holy Spirit and that we might continue to abide with him that you might produce much fruit in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.